And our passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is the word of our Lord. So really, I mean, you may find this to be an unusual selection for Advent. And so I understand that I need to convince you uh, that it's not an unusual selection. I mean, this passage, uh, you'll admit, is uh, one of the glorious Christological statements in Scripture of the grandness of Jesus. It is a passage that uh, echoes with the majesty and the power and eternality of Jesus Christ. There's other passages uh, like this. John 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17, again, again another uh, grand Christological expression of the majesty of Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, there's uh, uh, others, a couple of expressions, the beginning uh, of uh, Ephesians, uh, these uh, expressions that capture in very few words the greatness of Jesus. So this passage from 1 Corinthians 8 is one of those passages that belongs in that family of passages that remind us of the largeness of the Advent you see, the incarnation is often framed in a rather less than spectacular fashion, but this is, need I remind you, the second person of the Trinity's incarnation into time and space. So this is a great passage to communicate the grandness of the Advent. But I also want us to see in this passage uh, the great personal impact of the Advent. The incarnation is not just some distant Middle Eastern reality from the first century with no real personal impact on my life today. Boy, even as Christians, we can think that way about Christmas. Our passage this morning is a glorious statement of the grandness of Jesus Christ, but we're going to have to note that this statement is placed right in the middle of a very practical issue in the life of Christians in Corinth. I believe that here we see the incarnation, the advent of Jesus as the very power that allows the church to, as a body of believers, function and so I want to, as we look at this passage, expand on the beginning and the, and the end of the passage to show a bit of the context. The context is remarkable for this grand statement of who Jesus is. 
And let me just, uh, by way of advertisement, tell you uh, what will be happening here at Covenant over the course of these Advent Sundays. Uh, Next week, I'll look at a passage from Luke chapter 1 that is uh, Mary's uh, Magnificat, Mary's uh, song uh, to uh, God about Jesus, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we'll be next week. The week after, uh, we will stay in Luke's gospel, and Jake will bring to us God's word about the uh, revelation to the shepherd shepherds and the beautiful praise of the angels and then the week after that we will be in Luke uh, again Luke chapter 2 and we're going to hear the words of Simeon uh, when Jesus is presented at the temple and in the very end uh, uh, of our uh, Advent season, December 29th, actually, uh, Dr. Keynes is going to be with us, and he's going to reflect upon a passage from Revelation about how Jesus is the singular fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> I think this is a beautiful schedule for the use of God's pulpit during the season of Advent. And so this morning, we begin... Now, when our passage in the, in the context of 1 Corinthians 8 says that Jesus Christ is the one through whom are all things and through whom we exist, we're to understand by this that to have life through Jesus is not just to have a redeemed life, it's also to have life within the body of, of uh, other believers. Let me say that again. What this passage is saying to us is that to have life through Jesus is not just to have a redeemed life individually. It's also to have a life within the body of others. Now... two-part sermon before you this morning. Uh, I want us to look at the problem that the Corinthian believers are going through. Uh, And and at first, the first part of the sermon, uh, this problem is addressed with a rather practical solution. But then the second part of the sermon, the problem that the Corinthian Christians are enduring is a problem that is addressed not merely by a practical solution, but by a personal solution, the incarnation of Jesus touching all in the church at Corinth. So let's, let's begin. There is a very practical matter in which this grand statement of the majesty of Christ falls in. If we uh, look in our Bibles at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I know we've not spent time in uh, 1 Corinthians, but in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, uh, the word says, Now concerning food offered to idols, you see there was a question that these believers had for Paul. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, he's responding to that question. Everyone in the city of Corinth, uh, well, in the church at Corinth, would know what Paul is talking about. There's an issue, and they asked Paul about that issue. And, And let me provide some background for that issue. In Corinth, a uh, merchant who was raising a cattle would take uh, a portion of that meat that he would be selling, and he would take that meat to the temple, and he would offer it to a god. He would be dedicating uh, this meat before it makes it to the market. And then the the priest would receive this uh, large piece of meat. Uh, He would burn a small portion of it, and then the priest would eat a portion of it. And that would be be, uh, the merchant... Uh, the rancher, as it were, uh, dedicating this meat to his God. 
The merchant would then take that very large remaining portion. The priest has taken a little bit to, uh, to uh, burn and a little bit to eat. And then the rest of it, it goes straight to the market. And he would place it in the market and he would, he would sell to whoever would come and give him money. But not every merchant would dedicate their meat to their God. Not every merchant was so devout. And so some meat in the market would have been dedicated at a temple, but some meat in the market would not. There's no marking for the meat. It's just a market, and shoppers would come, and they would shop for their meat. Now, this would lead to some shopping problems for members of the Corinthian church. There would be the kind of shopper from the church who would be a rather non-critical shopper. He or she would buy their meat really without thinking about it. They would never ask the merchant where the meat came from if it was dedicated to a god. They would just judge the quality of the meat and they'd buy it. They wouldn't ask questions. That's your non-critical shopper who is a part of the Corinthian church. But also a part of the Corinthian church would be an extra critical shopper. This is almost the very opposite temperament. He or she would never buy meat unless they could actually verify that this merchant did not take this meat to a temple. And so the extra critical shopper is going to ask a lot of questions. And then someplace in the middle... There would be uh, a man or woman who is a part of the Corinthian church who uh, would not be a non-critical shopper and not be an extra-critical shopper. Uh, They'd be perhaps a sometimes-critical shopper. And they'd make their decision on which meat to buy in the market uh, using a different criteria, maybe using a criteria that would change uh, day by day. They'd find the right cut of meat. Maybe they'd ask. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they'd look around. Maybe they wouldn't. But this is the sometimes critical shopper. And all three of these individuals are a part of the Corinthian church, the non-critical shopper, the extra-critical shopper, and the sometimes critical shopper. They're all Christians. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 8 tells us that these are people who love God. And as such, Paul would then say in verse 4, that each of these people in the Corinthian church three different kinds of shoppers, they would know that an idol has no real existence. That's a quote from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. An idol has no real existence. And they would also know, the very next phrase, that there is no God but one. They have the same doctrine. And yet, they go into the same market market, and they shop in different ways the the non-critical shopper he or she knows that an idol has no real existence and they just purchase what they want the extra critical shopper uh, he or she also knows that an idol has no real existence but they purchase so carefully as to never encourage idolatry or look like an idolater themselves And then the sometimes critical shopper knows that an idol has no real existence. And they'll purchase carefully after they find the right cut of meat. And that's going to be the determining factor, apparently. And then in verse 6, 
in verse 6, Paul draws from a confessional statement in the church. Or maybe verse 6 is not from a confessional statement in the church. It could be it's from a hymn in the church. And Paul says this in verse 6. He says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And so uh, Paul is dissolving any notion that there are other gods that could possibly receive meat dedicated to them. There is one God. And he's also placing with this phrase the lives of the Corinthian, Corinthian Christians on a continuum of God's work when he says, from whom, that is, from God the Father, are all things. From whom are all things? God created all things, all creation, all people, all animals, and all meat in the market. All things are from him. And so, so Paul, he places Corinthian Christians on the continuum of God's work. And then finally, with verse 6, Paul is placing a target before these Christians when he says, For whom, that is, for God the Father, we exist. And then in the Greek, the word exist isn't really there, uh, for whom we are, for whom we live, says the NIV. The life that we have, the decisions that we make are to be directed towards him because we exist for him. Now, I want us to just stop and think about the first part of verse 6. And while it seems like there's no way this presents a solution for these people... It actually does. And there's a sense in which the first part of verse 6, it tells the individual Christians in Corinth, he said that, there's, there's, that an idol has no real existence, there's no God but one, and he says that all things are made by God, we are to do everything in life for God. And so each shopper can, with that information, actually move forward, can't they? An idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. All things are made by God. We are to do everything in our life for God. This is great, isn't it? I mean, now they know how to shop. Uh, they don't believe that there are any other gods. They know that the one true God has created all things. They offer their life to the service of that one true God. Christians can actually uh, be settled with this amount of information. I know how to behave like this, and you know how to behave like this. We go to the market, and we're shopping uh, based upon those own things, that, uh, th those things that we know about God. And uh, we understand that there's no God uh, other than the one true God. We understand that, that uh, our God has made all things. And we also understand that we're to, to live our lives in a way uh, that is for that one true God. Isn't this enough? I can go to the market. I can buy meat now. Well, you know where I'm going with this, but let me, let me just call it out. This actually is a defective picture of what Paul is after. Because we need to look at the second part of verse 6 to see. But, well, this picture is a picture uh, a lot like uh, a picture of a person who goes to a club in uh, an uh, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, short story called The Greek Interpreter. Uh, Sherlock Holmes describes this club called the Diogenes Club. And I think that what, what Paul has described here is he's described how Christians can individually, uh, one by one, go into a market and make a decision and come out with food. 
But when Sherlock Holmes is describing this club called the Diogenes Club, uh, it's a club in which uh, there are many uh, men in London who gather together, and uh, Sherlock Holmes says that from some shyness or from some uh, misanthropy, some hatred of man, they just don't have any wish for the company of others. And they can go into this club, the Diogenes Club, and and they can go in and and they don't have to say anything to anyone. They can sit down and they can read their paper. Um, It is, according to Sherlock Holmes, the most unsociable and unclubbable club in London. And he loves it. He says, I have found my, I, I, I myself, myself found it a very soothing atmosphere. And many uh, times I think that in the church we uh, think that this is how the church works. That Jesus Christ has come to save me and I am now to go into life making wise decisions. And yes, you are. But not alone. We can live this way as Christians, knowing that there's one God, that he made all things, and that we're called to live life for him. However, we're missing something. The real problem of the passage. The problem can have a practical solution, but I don't want us to stop here at the beginning of the season of Advent with that practical solution. I want us to go on. I mean, why did Paul write 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Why did he even write it? To help Christian people make isolated decisions in the marketplace? To help you as an individual, me as an individual, go into the marketplace and not be befuddled by our doctrine, but actually give a merchant money and walk out with meat to feed my family? No. 1 Corinthians 8 was written to help Christians make their decisions in a context of life together. Paul is writing to help individual shoppers in the church body at Corinth live together in love. The non-critical shopper, the extra-critical shopper, and the sometimes critical shopper, they need to function together, to live together in the same church, to respect one another's decisions and to love one another. At the very beginning in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Paul says that knowledge puffs up, fills with pride, but love builds up. He says in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 8, take care that this right of yours, this shopping decision of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That is, someone with a different shopping decision. And Paul confesses uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 8 in verse 13, he says, he says this, he says, If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The real problem of 1 Corinthians 8, which is why Paul provides a solution in verses 5 and 6, the real problem of 1 Corinthians 8, it's not making a shopping decision in the market. It's understanding how to love my brother and my sister. And for this, to be able to truly love one another, they need God to come close to them. They need God to be among them as a church body. They need a more personal solution. What they need is the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. A well-respected Christian counselor who does ministry uh, in Seattle, a man by the name of Jay Stringer, writes that it is relationships that actually alert us to the reality that there are no simple solutions or easy fixes in life. 
Living with others, he goes on, we tend to listen with our ears but close our hearts and our souls. Or we do this, we just vanish from others and we play like we're busy. Living together as a body of followers of Jesus is not easy. That is what this chapter is about. It's about the non-critical shopper lording their shopping freedom over other more critical shoppers. It's about the extra critical shopper judging others as if every less critical shopper is less holy. And it's about the sometimes critical shopper getting in on the action to sometimes lord their freedom over others and sometimes judge others. 1 Corinthians 8 is written because the Christian people in Corinth may be able to make wise shopping decisions individually. But when they shop together, which they do because they live together, they're a complete mess. In order to live together as a church... In a beautiful way, we need the incarnation. These Corinthian believers, they need to understand the reality of the second half of verse 6. For us, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I need to explain this, but to have life through Jesus is not just to have a redeemed life. It's also to have a life within that body of Christ. Something interesting is happening with Paul's solution to the problem in our passage this morning. Well, when Paul quotes the phrase in verse 4, there's no God but one, he's actually quoting perhaps the most famous Old Testament memory verse ever. There is no God but one. You see that in verse 4 of the passage, though uh, it's not where uh, I'm directing my attention for the sermon, but This phrase, there's no God but one, it's been called the watchword of Israel's faith. Sometimes it's called the Shema because Deuteronomy 6.4, which is is what Paul is quoting, Deuteronomy 6.4, that verse begins with, uh, in the Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel. And there is no God but one. This is called the Shema, and it's not a prayer. It's a confessional statement. By 200 AD, it was well established that the, that the Shema would be recited every day in the life of a Jewish person. This phrase has been analyzed for centuries, and I don't want to make light of its complexity, but I do want us to see that Paul turns, as he looks at the problem in the Corinthian church, he, he turns to a really familiar statement to unlock the difficulty of living together as Christians. The Shema was meant to be a guide as the Hebrew people, along with strangers and sojourners, move into Canaan, into the promised land where they they will live together among uh, other nations or surrounded by other nations. That's what Paul's quoting He's going back to Deuteronomy 6 where Moses is trying to comfort a people before they go into the promised land. And what Moses says to them is that they're to find great comfort each day in the fact that there is none like God. He alone is all they need in the land filled with false gods. But Paul also wants us to take comfort that the life that we have together is sustained only by faith in Jesus. And he understands that to be the case with Moses as well. 
as Moses is comforting people before they go into the promised land, this is really what he's saying to them. He's saying that they need to be the kind of people that understand that their life together is sustained only by faith. And it is only through him that they have that life. Paul's quoting a sermon from Deuteronomy. Moses is preparing a people for their life together. And Paul sees the Shema as a reminder to Christians in Corinth that shopping decisions made in the market concerning meat that may have been dedicated to false gods should not derail their relationships. And he says this by saying in verse 6, Yet for us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, there's a lot going on when we look at the difficulties that these people are enduring in Corinth. Able to make decisions, but not able to love one another amidst those decisions. And the solution that Paul has for them is a reminder of who Jesus is and who and where Jesus is. There's a few things that we need to pick out in this passage. Yet for us, there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Three, three things to, to mention. First is this. Paul, he's bringing the people in the church together. He begins by saying, yet for us. Yet for us. Paul's finding solidarity with the people. He's reminding them that the, the great Redeemer has come for a plurality of people, yet for us. And Paul, he, he brings together every person in the Corinthian church who professes faith in Jesus Christ. But he also, he brings, uh, he brings himself into that, into that same scope. And he's making a statement that is directed to and applies to every Christian. Yet for us. And then Paul goes on and he says two more things. He says that through Jesus are all things. Now, we should hear creation. Through Jesus are all things. It, it's creation, creation just like up above where he says that uh, from God the Father are all things. From God the Father and through Jesus Christ are all things. He's saying that both the Father and the Son are at work in creation from the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's almost like an intensified reminder of what happened at creation. Now, I believe there's a reason why he does that, and it's in the third point. Paul, he says, yet for us, he brings everyone together. And then he has a statement here uh, about the creative endeavors of the Father and the Son. And then here uh, at the end, Paul says that through Jesus, we exist. Again, the word exist isn't there. Through Jesus, we are. Through Jesus, we have life. And there's a double meaning here. On the one hand, the life that we have is the life as a as new creation. He's already uh, given a picture of creation. All things were created uh, by God and through Jesus Christ. All things, creation. But here he's saying through Jesus we exist. And it's a reference to us being new creations. A new work of Jesus, uh, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the ministry of Jesus. We are redeemed. 
But remember the context of our passage. The context of our passage is a congregation that's just messy. A congregation that's hurting each other as they go to shop in the marketplace. And so while he says, through Jesus we exist, he's talking about existing through the work of Jesus that has saved me, but he is also talking about something else. Indeed, I am individually redeemed through the work of Jesus. And you, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you indeed have been redeemed through the work of Jesus, but there's another life that we have. Not just an individual life, a life of new creation. We have a kind of life that is a life together as a new community. This also is part of what Paul means by addressing all of the Christians with this phrase, through him we have our life. Through him we have our life together. See, to have life through Jesus is not just to have a redeemed life. It's also to have a life within the body of believers. And I, and I want you to, to listen to evidence of this uh, towards the end of 1 Corinthians 8. Listen to what Paul says. Again, he's just describing the life of these shoppers who profess faith in Jesus, who know how to shop, but they don't know how to shop together. And Paul says, so by your knowledge, as a certain kind of shopper, by your knowledge, he says in 1 Corinthians eight eleven. By your knowledge, you certain kind of shopper, this uh, weak person, another kind of shopper, is destroyed. Through your shopping, another person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, Paul says. And Paul goes on in uh, verse 12, he says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's in verses 11 and 12. They know how to shop, but they don't know how to shop as a church body. And when I say that to have life through Jesus is not just to have a redeemed life, it's also to have a life within the body of others, what I mean is that there's something about the incarnation. There's something about the coming of Jesus Christ. There's something about the work of redemption in our hearts that we need to step outside of just a bit to see that same work in someone else's heart. He came to redeem me, and he came to redeem you. But he didn't come to redeem me by myself, and he didn't come to redeem you by yourself. You and I, we need to see our own redemption reflected in the lives of those around us. That's what Paul is after When Paul is talking about uh, Jesus Christ who has come near to us, he is talking about a Jesus who has come to exhibit that life day by day in our lives together as a church body. And when we think about the Advent this year, I'd like us to have in our minds these great Christological statements of how great Jesus is and how eternal Jesus is. And I want us to have in mind his great work in our heart that he has saved us, that he has redeemed us. All of that should be uh, uh, in our uh, thoughts and our conversations during the season of Advent. But I don't want us to forget this, that the season of Advent is also about that work of Jesus creating for himself a church body, a body of individuals who, when they look at each other, they see Christ's work And when they shop together, they shop with an eye on the work of Christ in another person's life. 
They value people not because they're excellent shoppers. And they, they value people not even merely because they are saved people. They value people because the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not just about what's happening to us individually. It's about what's happening to all of us together. And that makes us a very different people. I, I want to... Uh, just highlight a, a poem from George Herbert in the 17th century. And it's a poem about a man who's looking for Jesus. And he says this. He says, Knowing his great birth, I sought him accordingly in great resorts and cities, theaters, gardens, parks, and courts. He's looking for Jesus in these great, magnificent places. And the very end of the poem, he says, At length I heard a ragged noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. <laughs> Almost as if he's walking through uh, grand parks and gardens and theaters and cities and courts looking for Jesus. But something uh, catches his ear, a ragged noise and mirth, and it's the noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. And George Herbert says, I saw him there. Uh, That's where I saw him. And I don't want us to forget that this Advent season, this incarnation is Jesus entering not just our individual lives, but actually entering the mess of our relational lives, even in this present age. We do struggle together. Even as as converted Christians, we struggle in our life together. But let's not forget that Jesus is a comfort not just to us individually. He is a comfort to the church body as a whole. And just as he went into a body of thieves and murderers to find you, you still are a sinner in need of grace. And we still are a body of people that need that Advent grace. Let's not forget. Would you please pray with me? Our Jesus, we thank you for coming. We thank you that you will one day come again. But we thank you this morning for your presence with us right now. You have redeemed us. And you continue to work in us as a church body. That we would understand that we are not alone. We're not the only saved person. We thank you for our brothers and sisters this season of Advent. Thank you in your name. Amen.